Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We're in Samuel 18, picking up where we left off. Fancy that, right? Um, we just came off of the battle of, of, of David and Goliath, or really David and God working together for the first time. Goliath's just a speed bump. And now we get to see how that happens. So David's a national hero. Everybody loves him. But in the next two chapters, we're going to go from national hero to being in exile and being a, um, actually on the run. And being a, uh, what do you call that? Like a, a fugitive. Thank you. This is what happens when we get older. We forget words we thought we knew. Uh, it starts off in verse 1. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even with, with, to his sword and his bow and his belt. This is really cool. We get the introduction of a friendship. How many friendships have we seen in the Bible so far? We've seen husbands and wives that love each other. We've seen brothers, Moses and Aaron, do this. But this is a friendship born out of the Spirit. And it's a pretty stunning one. Uh, First of all, it starts off in verse 1 with now when he, uh, the end of chapter 17 has David before Saul victorious with the head of Goliath in his hand. So Jonathan is in the palace room seeing this. So when it says now when he had finished, the he there is David finished showing that he had just beaten Goliath. This is really immediately after that story. Jonathan's reaction to it, and we know Jonathan from back in chapter 14, right? He charges the Philistines. He's the only guy in leadership in Israel willing to fight the enemy. Everybody else is just scared of the enemy, but he's bold. He's a man of God. He's following God, but he's also trying to honor his father. And we saw that kind of stress back in 14. Now this kid comes in, this shepherd boy, 14-year-old. He's ruddy and he's handsome. And Jonathan's just listening to this guy going, I did this in the name of the Lord. The Lord told me to go do it, and we did it. We can't fear the enemy. We need to go attack the enemy. And something stirs in Jonathan's soul. He's like, this is my guy. And Jonathan, being a commander of armies already, is likely a little older than David. Five to ten years probably older than David is. But he hears the spirit of somebody willing to fight, and something in Jonathan, and the phrase there is knit to the soul of. I don't know if that stood out to you. Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. There's a regard, a respect. The soul of Jonathan was to serve the Lord. The soul of David is to serve the Lord. This is what we call brotherly love. Super rare. Yet in a fellowship like this one, it's all over the place, right? There comes to be something where you don't just have a regard for someone or respect for someone. You'd say, I would die for that person. I, the, the way they're pursuing the Lord is how I want to pursue the Lord. And I would absolutely go to the end with this guy. And we see that not only does Jonathan have this 
revelation to himself, but he acts on it too. The word knit there in the Hebrew is kasar. It means to bind something. So there's something going on. In Deuteronomy 11:18, it's the same word that God uses for our relationship or his relationship with his people. Deuteronomy 11:18. Therefore you should lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them kasar to your as a sign on your hand that they will be frontlets between your eyes. It's how we're supposed to connect to God that our will just becomes so excited about what God's doing on the planet, we're knit to it. We're in a, we'll live and die with it. It's the same word that gets used for Jacob as he doesn't want to see Benjamin get left in, in Egypt because he's knit to Benjamin in Genesis 44. Like there, it's the same kind of love as a father has for his son who he adores. So it's how we're supposed to react with the word of God. It's how a father reacts to their son. And then this example, it can be how a brother knits himself to a brother. No biological connection but the kind of connection that just goes deeper than just an act like a passive friendship. There's so much more than an acquaintance. This is a brother. And you start realizing we're going to live our lives together. Like we're on this journey together. So Saul took him that day as when Saul takes him in verse two, it's like he's taken him as a resource. And the contrast between Saul and, Chal Saul and Jonathan is the story of these two chapters. Because Jonathan gives his cloak and his sword, Saul takes David. And we're going to see that division just get greater and greater. Then in verse 3, then Jonathan and David made a covenant. So this is a public thing. That word covenant is like an actual, they make a pact. And it seems to be in the palace room in front of everybody. Like, there's a thing that has to get resolved here. So if they realize they both want to honor God, then their souls actually come together um, in verse 3, that they loved him as his own soul. Like, this is a connection here. So, I don't know. For me, this is stronger than Saul's jealousy. In fact, it's the friendship that's going to save David's life in the face of Saul trying to kill him. This is the covenant that gets made. So Saul's going to make Jonathan have to choose between David or him. And what comes through is the covenant. If that tells you anything about the ancient world and how powerful these covenants were. So that's the kind of covenant God wanted with his people. And I think it comes down to like when we come together as a fellowship, honestly, to tell you the truth, like if you're looking at it real point blank, if this couple right here walked in right now, they'd be coming to a Bible study. But the idea of covenant is a little different. Covenant is like, I'm in for, I'm in for the end. I'm in for the whole thing. And there's that, oh, they're turning around. Maybe they are going to come in. Um, and I think there's something different than saying, I just want to come and hang out at a Bible study versus... I, I want to come and live my life with people and spend time with people. And there are, they are slightly different. So this covenant's a formal agreement between people common across the Middle East at this time. And the idea is they're going to support each other, protect each other, even unto death. So Jonathan, by making covenant with David, is I'm going to have your back until the day I die. So when Saul eventually asks him here in a few, a few sentences to go and kill him, Jonathan's made a covenant. He can't do that. So Jonathan took off his robe. The robe is a sign of like wealth and resources. It's a powerful gesture of bringing David in as a brother, a soul brother, so to speak. It's a princely gift to give anyone. Remember, Joseph got in trouble because his robe was so nice. Uh, so it's that. It's a picture of these gracious gifts. The other thing is like Jonathan gives him his weapons. In the ancient world, if you handed someone your sword, it was an act of surrender. 
So there's a strong implication here that Jonathan is saying, instead of me inheriting the crown, I'm going to let you inherit the crown. Uh, his bow that's there gets mentioned. Did I not write down? Ah, I failed you all. I didn't write down the reference, but Jonathan's bow is legendary. It gets referenced in the Psalms. Like John, the, great, the bow of Jonathan is like a big thing. Well, he actually gives it to David here. He's anointed there. So Jonathan's going to resolve this issue of who the next king is right here, right now with this covenant. You're clearly the king and I'm not. Because Jonathan didn't stand up to Goliath either, remember? So it's going to take 20 years for that to happen, but it happens right here when it comes to Jonathan. Also a note uh, that, remember David rejected Saul's armor in chapter 17? But here David's accepting Jonathan's armor. Why? Maybe they were more the same size, like could just be physical. But there's something that Jonathan's offering armor out of an act of love. Saul offered armor as, out of an act of cowardice. So accepting these gifts has something to do with Jonathan too. Uh, what's sad to me is a lot of people look at the relationship between Jonathan and David and they think it's just like, they reduce it to like a homosexual relationship. And I think that's really sad because first it's a total misread of the introduction of that relationship and it's a total misread when David gives Jonathan's epitaph after he dies. He just says, this is much, much more than anything that I've ever had with one of my wives. I mean, he really clearly says this is a brotherly love. And I think that when people do that, it's because they don't understand brotherly love. They've never had it. And if you've never experienced a kind of love that's simply more than just a sexual relationship, you really don't understand the relationship between Jonathan and David. It's a relationship of souls, and it's a connection. It's the kind of connection a man and a wife have after you take away the sexual part of the relationship. There's a relationship where you're bound together for life. And the Bible celebrates that. It, it's, it is something that is an absolute glory to God when the men of God, and frankly, when the women of God, bond together in brother and sisterly love. And it's what the church is called to do. So we get a model of that. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, Goliath, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. They're having a worship night. So the women sang as they danced, and they said, Saul is slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. All right. All right. This is the beginning of the end. Praise is the beginning of the end for Saul's relationship with David. As that David, as David gets praise, other people get jealous of it, especially Saul. But it says in verse 5 that David behaved wisely. In the Hebrew, that has to do with more just like Solomon-like Proverbs wisdom. It has to do specifically with being successful in battle. So he goes out to fight the Philistines, and he's shrewd, he's creative, he's outsmarting people. When I get to heaven, I want to read the book of David's battles because he's known for his intelligence and strategic battle against the Philistines. He keeps outsmarting them. Also, the, we'll notice here that David's reaction to success looks a lot like his reaction to failure, is that he keeps a pretty level head because he's not looking for the praise of women, and he's not looking for the, and he's not worried when he gets the critique of his brother in the last chapter. Like his eyes are on the Lord, and it's part of what makes him great. So Saul sets him over the men of war. That's kind of an odd promotion to take a shepherd kid 
and make him your general. Uh, he has a gen general already, Abner. So to put him over the men of war is kind of an odd thing. It, it sounds like he's in charge of all of the men of war and that he's actually got that. Later on, we're going to see he gets put in charge of a 1,000. So that's either a demotion or this is more of a generalization at the beginning of the chapter. Also in the sight of Saul's servants. So he's not just getting the respect of the soldiers. He's also getting respect of the people in verse 5 and in the sight of Saul's servants. Remember, he used to be one of Saul's servants. So the fact that he gets promoted and the people that he used to work with are actually excited about the promotion, doesn't that say a ton about his character and personality? Like it, it says a lot about that if you work with somebody and you're actually cheering them on when they get promoted, it says a ton about the quality of person that they knew David to be. So David then was returning. Parades are common when you come home from war. There's parades. Remember after World War II, there's a big ticker tape parade in New York. And it's spontaneous. Part of the spontaneity is you're coming out to see if your brother or husband is coming home alive. And when the armies start coming back in victory, it means a lot more of them are alive than if it went the other way. So the celebration is extremely natural. It happens fairly organically. Um, and, and you get pretty excited if you're, you're, you're a wife and not a, a widow or if you're a child and you're not an orphan. Like that's a really neat moment. So the celebration comes out. They start singing this song. <laughs> the Hebrew word for sing there is a specific kind of responsive singing where one side sings this and the other side sings that. Um, so likely when they're singing Saul is slain as thousands, that was one group of women. And then another group would shout back. Like when you're at a high school football game and they're yelling back and forth between the bleachers. So it's almost like a one-up kind of thing. Um, and this is not good because Saul's getting ticked off. There's a few things that would tick Saul off here. First of all, notice in verse 7 they don't say King Saul. They just say Saul. The people have forgotten to give him his title. And kings don't like it when you do that to them. Uh, it's, it's catchy. We know that because in chapter 9, the Philistines are singing it too. So it's like a song you can't get out of your head. So Saul's likely going to bed, and he's hearing it sung over and over and over again. So it's catchy. So they're singing it like a folk song. It's praise for both Saul. But Saul doesn't like to be second place. That's the obvious thing here. David kills more people than Saul does. Also, it says Saul has slain his thousands in the past tense and David his ten thousands without a tense. Almost like Saul's an old guy. And so it's not only not a king, he's not an active or vibrant warrior anymore, and he didn't kill as many people as David. So this little sing-songy thing is not honoring Saul in the way Saul wants it to be. And that's probably going to inspire a lot of jealousy in him because he wants the glories. Always, we've always known that about Saul. He wants the attention of people. It's his precious. He needs it. So David is content and happy keeping the sheep. And Saul's not content and happy having an awesome general in his army. Good leaders don't get upset when their subordinates succeed, ever. Like if your subordinate succeeds, it makes you look really good. Because if David's that good, how good is the king? So I don't know that like the people meant this as an attack because Saul gave him the position. So this should be something that Saul celebrates, but it's not. It's something that gets him mad. Verse 8, then Saul was very angry. So you don't trust my word for it. It just says that. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, 
and to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Like Saul's just like, it's almost like he's kind of a five-year-old. He's getting less mature as time goes on. So they've ascribed to him. Uh, if Saul had a relationship with God at all, it doesn't matter what people ascribe to you or don't ascribe to you. That's not who you're trying to please. The ascribing is an effect of God's blessing. It's not the cause of blessing. So he's just, so now what more can we have with the kingdom? Knowing that Samuel has walked away from him and said he's lost the kingship, this has got to be kind of terrifying to Saul too. So if we want to get inside his head a little bit, Saul sees this as the fulfillment of what Samuel said would happen. So he realizes God's going to raise up somebody new. And there's a part of him saying, is it this David guy? Is this the guy God's raising up? Verse 9, yes, it is. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. The, the, <laughs> David being eyed, the implication there is Saul has identified him as the person that's going to take the kingship. The only question left for Saul is, is this guy going to kill me? Is this guy out to get me? Is he going to manipulate and, and work around to make things happen? Is he going to kill my son? Is this covenant with Jonathan just a scam? His playing of the harp, was that just his way to wheedle his way into the palace? So those thoughts start growing like a plague, corroding his love for David, if he ever have one. And, and that's what you call projection. It's a psychological effect. When you've got an attitude and disposition, our tendency as humans is to project that attitude on other people. If I'm a low-down, dirty, rotten scoundrel, it must be that everybody else is low-down and dirty, rotten, too. If I'm a joyful but happy person, it's hard for me to even imagine someone wouldn't be joyful and happy like me. They're just having a down day, and you just think the best of people. So this projection that he does speaks to what his heart is and what it is. And then, last but not least, verse 9. I'm not going to get into it because it would take me a good 15 minutes. Verse 9 is the middle of a giant chiasm. So if you want to unlock that in your Bible study, uh, you are welcome to. And I'll show you later where to kind of hook that in. But just know that this entire two-chapter sequence, the middle of it is this verse 9. So Saul, uh, that's the point of all of this, is that something's changed in the relationship where Saul, David doesn't soothe Saul anymore. He's eyeing David as the king. He's identified who the anointed is. And instead of celebrating that, Frankly, you know what he could have done? He could have taken off his robe and given it to David right there. Of course, the Bible would be less interesting, but he could have, at that point, when he identified David's the anointed one, could have said, David, I know that God's lifted his hand for me. Here's the scepter. Here's my sword. Here's my robe. He could have done everything Jonathan just did. And he could have just walked away. And he could have gone back to herding his dad's donkeys and had a happy life. And I bet God would have blessed that humility. But he, that's not it, and we have a much more interesting Bible. Verse 10. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside his house. So David played music with his hand, as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand, and Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. That's not nice thinking. But David escaped his presence twice, now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it had departed Saul. We're going to pick these verses apart and go a little bit faster as we go through the rest of the chapter because if we pick these verses apart, we kind of get the sense of the relationship. Um, 
and it happened implies that this is an everyday kind of thing. David, after beating Goliath, actually goes back to playing music in verse 10 for, for, for Saul. I honestly think, what a, what a beautiful thing. Like, this guy's got humility. Just like when he was playing harp for Saul, he still went back to his dad to take care of the sheep. In this particular situation, he's now a battle general, but he's still playing music for Saul. Like, the idea of getting promoted in God's kingdom doesn't necessarily abdicate you from responsibilities that you may think are lesser. David's humility here is great. The word prophesied in verse 10 is to speak under the influence of a spirit, and that can be a good spirit or a bad spirit. And in this case, the word prophesied might be misleading because we think of that generally as a positive thing. But if it's a distressing spirit that's involved, then he's speaking for that spirit and he's letting that spirit come out of his mouth. So it's another recorded instance of a kind of spiritual warfare that doesn't always get represented in the, in the Old Testament. But we see glimpses of it like this. And it's the kind of warfare that Jesus came to combat. But Saul had a responsibility here, and it's the speaking of this spirit, but when he throws the spear, notice that the spear was in Saul's hand. So this spirit can't make Saul do anything he doesn't want to do. He wants to pick up that spear and throw it, and he does. So David played the music with his hand. There's an interesting contrast. Saul has a spear in his hand. David has a harp in his hand. And I think as the people of God, like the weapons of this world are not our weapons we would be better to have a guitar in our hand than to have a machine gun. And that contrast is really strong. Saul cast the spear. His goal is to pin David to the wall. That's a really violent thought. And you know I like to emphasize these things. To pin someone to the wall with a spear means that spear goes all the way through their physical body. He doesn't want to just kill David. He wants to make a show of David. He wants to pin him to the wall like a trophy. He wants to not just hit him, he wants to hit him hard. So the amount of hate that's fueled in him right now is strong, and it comes out of this jealousy. I don't want David to thrive and be successful. But David escapes, and here's the baffling part about this. Now we get to see what this says about David's character. Think about this. You're in the room playing a harp for somebody, or if you don't like harps, you're playing a tambourine, whatever. The person you're playing for throws a weapon at you with the intent to kill you. Do you stick around? Like, honestly, if this was written about me, it would be, and then Sean picked up the spear and threw it back at him. <laughs> like, it wouldn't be like David avoided it twice. Like, he actually went back to playing harp. Like, this is, a, like, how innocent David is, how sweet this man is. He's just like, oh. I, so, you know, what was he thinking? Like, Saul just accidentally threw a spear at him? Or he's like, I have a duty, I'm just going to keep playing and maybe I'll soothe his spirit because he's so used to these rage fits from Saul that he's like, I just got to keep playing. His heart is still in helping Saul versus saving his own life. This is why people followed David because he's humble and he's willing to put his life there. So twice, that's a striking word. He didn't just run. That's the other option. If somebody throws a spear at you, you just run if it doesn't hit you the first time. So David keeps playing. I think that's just phenomenal. Therefore, verse 13, therefore Saul removed him from his presence. Get out of here. And made, him, and made him his captain over a thousand as he went out and came in before the people. The solution Saul has is I just can't look at this guy anymore. And if I don't look at him, then we solve some problems. And he makes him over a thousand. So either he got demoted as a captain over a thousand, and I think that's a good read of it, 
because in the beginning he was put as a captain over all the men of war. So he just gives him a smaller unit. Verse 14, David behaved wisely in all his ways. We've heard that before. And the Lord was with him. And therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, very wisely, he was afraid of him. Why is he afraid of him? He's got somebody serving him that does the job well. Why is that such a threat? And I've never understood this phenomenon. If you got a great employer, somebody worked for you that's just knocking it out of the park, you should celebrate. They're, doing, they're giving you an honor, but not with Saul. And then verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. He's the one that went, one that went to fight the battles. People adore and love people that are boldly going out to fight the enemies of God. And they're just doing battle for it. And there's a natural regard that is better than any kind of politi polit political leadership role. So, and people tend to give people political leadership when they respect their actions in life. So a captain over a thousand, he goes out and comes in before them. And this is, I think, why, again, Jonathan and have a covenant. Remember, Jonathan just went out with his armor bearer. David's got a thousand men. He's thinking, awesome. I got a crack team of elite soldiers and we are going to stick it to the Philistines. We're going to fight God's battles and get these people out of this land. So even though he doesn't have control of the whole army, he's still doing God's work. And then all of Israel and Judah love him. Two things on this. First of all, the, the writer has separated Israel and Judah, which tells us that Samuel was a compilation that largely was put together later in Israel's history. So they've already made that distinction. It's not just Israel. It's Israel and Judah, which are the ten tribes to the west of the, of the river. Um, second thing on this is that in the same way that David took criticism from his brother in the last chapter, but it didn't stop him, here he's getting all this praise and glory in this chapter, and it doesn't stop him. And he, over, he overcomes both of those temptations, gushing praise on one side and criticism on the other. And then Michal shows up. I don't know. I don't want to say Michael because we've got so many of them, but I think that's how you pronounce her name is she was you know kind of like Sean can be a, a girl name and a guy name but I think it's just Michael um, and, and the next part is is set up by the last Saul at this point is not coming from a good place so in verse 17 when we read him offering a daughter first of all the whole country knew that he had promised that to whoever killed Goliath so look at what he does then Saul said to David here is my older daughter Merab and I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, we get a little insight here, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. If I give him only a thousand men and I send him out to fight the Philistines, Philistines are eventually going to kill him because he's scared of the Philistines. The problem with that is he doesn't, that, <laughs> that doesn't happen. So Saul is thinking these things. Here's the thing with Saul now, and, and I think he, as evil escalates, David continues to rise in the eyes of the people as a godly man. But at this escalation of evil, Saul's thinking doesn't match his speaking anymore. He's being, he's, that's what you call manipulation. He's a hypocrite. He's saying one thing, but in his heart he's thinking another. So he's being really nice to David with his words. He's saying everything that David wants to hear, but on his inside he's thinking something very different. And what David wants to hear is, look at, be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. Saul puts himself before the Lord. He throws in fight the Lord's battle, not our Lord's battle. So there's little things in how he says it 
But he knows that David fights for God. David's put God out front from the very beginning. So he knows that to manipulate David, he's got to use his love for the Lord to get him to do what he wants him to do. And he does. He's shameless with it. Verse 18. So David says to Saul, Who am I? What's my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, but it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel the Holothite, whatever that is, as a wife. Okay, so it's just kind of cruel, right? He promises a daughter, and then when it comes to be time for the marriage, when it comes time to do it, he actually puts another groom in there. This is meant to belittle David. It's meant to knock him down in the eyes of the people. It's meant to show him a slight or a disrespect. And one of, you know, I'm sure Saul's thinking, if I disrespect him, he might react like I would and, and, and get all angry and mad and throw a spear at me, and then people will not regard him as highly because he'll lose his temper. Or he'll be hurt and angry and mad, and, and he won't be a problem for me anymore. He's trying to get David to sin. But if David, this is just beautiful, one of the defenses against manipulative people is humility. If people try to manipulate you with what you, they think you want, and you're like, oh, I don't need that. I'm serving the Lord. That's an amazing defense to manipulative people. Or I don't live for what you think I live for. So we're not on the same page. And that's kind of what David does when he says, who am I? What's my life? And I, I don't deserve to be the son-in-law of a king. So Saul thinks he's got him in this trap, and David's just like, I, I'm not worthy of that honor. So he doesn't bite on pride. He doesn't bite on that. Um, to become his son-in-law is to become royalty. That's not a treat for God's people. That's a responsibility and a duty. And he's like, I don't need it. I'd rather just go fight God's battles. Also the phrase, who am I? I love this. The last person to say that was Abraham in Genesis 18.27 who said, um, I who am but dust, right? And just that idea, I'm just dust. I don't deserve anything more than that. Moses said in Exodus 3.11, who am I that I should serve a living God? So this puts David in pretty good company, right? Abraham, Moses, him. And if you switch the words around, it's God's response to Moses was, I am who I am. So those three words got rearranged a little bit, and you have a real communication between the humble servants of God, who am I to be in that position, and then God himself saying, I am who I am. I can pick whoever I want. So the girl is given to Adriel. David doesn't react like he's supposed to. In verse 20, Saul comes up with a new strategy. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul the thing pleased him. By the word loved here is not the same kind of love that we were talking about with, with Jonathan and David. She loves his fame. She loves his reputation. She loves who she'll be on his arm. Have you met girls like this before? Right? She loves that David's her MRS degree. And that's, she loves the idea of marriage, but not the person. And we're going to see that later. But, be, but see it for what it is in verse 20. She loves David. They told Saul and the thing pleased him. Okay, if it pleases David in his state of mind, this is not good for David. Verse 21, so Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him. What a nasty dad. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. 
Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law today. At, at this point, David should be getting suspicious. If he's thinking this girl's going to be a snare, we got to ask why is she a snare? One, she's not a very good wife. She doesn't love David for who he is. We'll see that in future chapters. In just the next chapter, in chapter 19, verse 13, if you kind of skim ahead, notice she's the one that has idols in the house. So when she's hiding David and using an idol, she's got, she has no business having idols in her house, but she does. And before it was said that the, the Gentiles in the land would be a snare to the Israelites because of their idol worship, right? And if they intermarried with the Canaanites, that, that, that would also be a snare to the Israelites because the idol worship... If you worship something other than God, that's a snare in a marriage. Those of you unmarried right now, please humor me and only marry a believer. Like, I don't, that's the only distinction that's out there. That's the only thing that makes your marriage something that will sustain over time. Otherwise, it's, it's not going to last. And you can talk to us old people. We all know people or we've been divorced ourselves. And we've seen it happen. You have to, that's where the Bible says yoke with other believers. Michael's not a believer. And it's not going to go well for David. It's going to be a disaster for him. But she's got this idea. I think for David's part, like, he's got to pay this dowry. And that's where the chapter is going to head next. Like, there's this idea that David can't afford the dowry of a prince. That's a lot of money. And that might be why he's saying, who am I? So, and Saul commanded his servants. Again, he's manipulating. Communicate with David secretly and say, look, at the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law, which implies David had turned this girl down too, because he said to David the second time in verse 21, and now he's sending other people to say it. This is kind of the thing with manipulators. They try to go to people directly, and when it doesn't work, they send agents. Well, if only I get so-and-so to ask so-and-so to do it. But what's going on is that they're trying to push their will, and the Holy Spirit isn't in it. And so they, they do this. And, and those of you in the workplace, you have likely already seen stuff like this. Um, but this is, you know, an indicator of a manipulative person. Verse 23, so Saul's servant spoke the words in the hearing of David. And David said, does it seem to you to be a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? Like David understands the weight of this. Seeing I'm poor and lightly esteemed, I don't have money. Do you think it's easy for me to pay that dowry? I don't have the money for this. Verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, told him saying, in this manner, David spoke. So they go back and they report it to Saul. And then Saul says, verse 25, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry, but 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Ooh, this just got R-rated. Take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. The whole plot of Saul is to get him to go out and get killed by somebody else. Right? This is going to get worse by the end of the next chapter. Saul's going to want them to bring David to him so he can kill him himself. Like the hatred keeps growing and David just gets, keep, his character keeps building. And we see this kind of split in direction. Um, also, this is kind of like Laban with Jacob swapping out the bride when he put Leah in there instead of Rachel. Did I get the names right? Like, there's a very similar kind of tactics here that he's using. Um, but the idea here is go and get foreskins. I'm not going to get into what that word means. If you don't know it, you shouldn't. Wait until your parents tell you. Uh, it pleases David. Uh, it pleased David to do this thing, or he hears this. Did I miss a verse? 
Verse 26. So when his, dervin, his servants said to David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. This kind of thing, David's so innocent. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. He doesn't think any malintent here. He's like, wow, look at that opening that God just opened up for me. I don't even have to come up with money. I just have to come up with foreskins. What a gift. This is a blessing. I know how to kill Philistines. Like that's my ballywag. I'm good at that. Goliath was just the first and he's there. And see, so he's looking at this as like, he's pleased, verse 26. This is great. What good news. Verse 27, therefore, David arose and went, he and his men, and they killed 200 men in the, of the Philistines and David brought their force kings. David's so excited, he doesn't get 100 Philistines, he gets 200 Philistines, right? Let's just stack them up. So he comes back with a box of foreskins. This is a scene that I'm glad the Bible's not televised. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. It sounds like David won here, but really Saul's plan is coming along just fine. Instead of just killing the enemy in battle, he asked David to desecrate the bodies. Even in pagan cultures, this makes David like Vlad the Impaler. This paints David as something worse than just an enemy. So David gains legendary status with the Philistines in a really negative way. This means that all of the Philistines now are gunning for David. You can take David out, you're taking out our great enemy. So, okay, that sounds good for Saul in an earthly sense. In a spiritual sense, Saul just elevated David again. Now he's elevated David in the eyes of his enemies. But that idea of desecrating the body would definitely make David a target. It would make him somebody the Philistines would come out to fight. And it creates a scene for all of us that we are now scarred for life. Because even though we didn't see that in video, we all picture it in our heads, and that's a, a gruesome image of what's going on. So Saul asks him to do that. David goes out. He kills the enemies of God, and he brings them, bring them the, brings them the foreskins. So he gets married, and, and this is kind of an interesting thing. David is not the biological son of the king, but he's grafted in as a son of the king. And so the ver- first real king of Israel, the first God-chosen king of Israel, is actually grafted in. And he's brought in as a leader of, of the nation of Israel, and he comes out of the tribe of Judah, and he's put on this throne, but he was not the son of the prior king to get put on that throne. He's God's select choice. But in a sense of how God's making it happen, he's using very earthly means to get him into a place that was heavenly appointed. So now he's the son of the king. The king's son dressed him in his own robes. The king's son, Jonathan, gave him the equipment and the clothing to be a child of the king. So we have these interesting parallels starting to show up. Despite Saul's heart, there's this, now this image of David being given authority by the son. Um, and at the point that he did it, it was with the approval of the father. The people adore him, but he's going to go through a period that's very, very, he's going to disappear from the scene for a while. And as he goes into being, oh my gosh, what is that word? A fugitive. As he goes into being a fugitive, he will not be seen by the people of Israel, and then he will be, he'll come back on the scene and reappear. But he's adored by the multitudes, he's adored by the crowds, and as soon as things look bad for David, he just becomes a fugitive. Now I'm going to learn that word because I'm going to say it like 20 times. Verse 28, 
Then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. How sad. He keeps trying to beat David, but all he keeps doing is elevating David in the eyes of the people. David just keeps winning. Nobody fails better than David. Nobody gets attacked, and it just he gets attacked, and he keeps coming out ahead. And now he's got a wife that loves him, and he's got a position with the people. He's been grafted into the throne room. Verse 30, then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. That's not a positive use of highly esteemed. He is highly esteemed by the Philistines. So his name became highly esteemed in the sense that David the name became legendary. But legendary in like the way that we think of our enemies from the perspective of the Philistines. Legendary with the Israelites because of how it was. So Saul successfully made David a target, but he misses that, um, the, the God's in control of all of this situation. First Samuel 19, uh, we'll keep moving forward. Again, when we see that idea that he was wise, notice that that was also used at the beginning of the chapter. And that's one of those clues where you can start to see the chiastic form. Again, those of you who like puzzles, it's a great one to figure out. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants and that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I'll go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak with my father about you. Then what you observe, I will tell you. So Jonathan sets up this situation where David's going to hide and then Jonathan and Saul are going to have a conversation that David can listen in on. I think Jonathan wants David to see what's going on. Like he, He's like, I'm your brother here, I gotcha. But politically, David, you're not tuning into the politics here. And you need to hear what Saul says about you behind your back. So he sets up this situation to kind of give David a little more insights here. Um, Jonathan's in this weird position where he's got to pick between David and Saul. The beginning of the last chapter, he made a covenant with David. So a lot of people struggle with this. To honor his dad, Saul, would be to obey him and kill David or help him kill David. But in honoring his father, he's disobeying the law of God. So we, we have this kind of scenario set up a lot of times. You've got this contrast between obedience to authority versus obedience to a living God. And we've had a lot of these kinds of questions even in our culture over the last couple years. Honoring authority is biblical because the Bible says to submit to the authorities, even civic authorities that are over you. The Bible never tells us to submit to authority when it makes us break the law of God. It's very consistent, and it's the same here. We're supposed to, we're commanded in the commandments to honor your father and mother, and in part of that is to obey them when you're under their roof. To obey them and break the law of God would be murder in this case. And God never asks us to obey our father and mother unto disobedience to God. And oh, blessed is the family where the parents are not in conflict with God and obeying mom and dad is not hard to do because they're also serving a living God. So Jonathan's in that situation. He makes the right choice. Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. No human being, even our parents, make laws that should get us to break the law of God. 
So there, there's a clear distinction in the Bible between those two, and we get clear direction when those two are in conflict. We follow God, not other human beings. So John does more than just refuse to kill David. He actually goes out and helps David. So he's doing like active, willful defiance against his dad's order here. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant. So I like how Jonathan calls it sin. Like this is part of how he's bringing the word of God back to his dad. Hey dad, trying to kill David, that would be sin. That's murder. You shouldn't be doing that. So don't sin against your servant against David because he's not sinned against you. And because his works have been very good towards you. Instead of imagining what David's thinking in his head, hey Saul, dad, maybe you should just tune into what he's done and look at his actions, not what you perceive his thoughts to be. This is the divining between thoughts and actions. For he took his life in his hands, he killed the Philistine, Goliath, and the Lord brought out a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and you rejoiced. Remember, Dad, when you were happy with what David did? Remember his actions were good and you thought that way? Why then will you sin against innocent blood and kill David without a cause? This is kind of how believers act when it comes to like the will of God. And I think it's a really good example of how we present God's will to people when they're in sin and rebuke them. Like just naming it as sin. It's not a debate of murder. Is murder sin or not? Yes, it's a sin. Why would you do that? What's the cause of this thing? What justifies it? And there is no justice in this situation. Saul's attacking him. So John helps David first, but I love how in these verses, he also tries to help his dad. He's trying to get Saul, and through Jonathan, I think God's trying to work in Saul's life too. So then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Oh, that's, I'm sorry, that's Acts 5.29. I just read that twice, sorry. So the idea that he's bringing that up, why are you doing that? Verse 6, Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. So it, seemingly, Saul changes his mind. This is kind of good. The power of a son to rebuke his father is pretty powerful, right? Because Saul loves his son. And when his son comes to him with that kind of humility and that kind of logic, like even Saul, as hard-hearted as we've seen him to be, seems to melt a little bit when his son brings this up. Verse 7, then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and when he, is in his he was in his presence as time, everything went back to normal. He was in his presence as in times past. He was playing the harp and in, in the palace room. And so we're seeing an inconsistent Saul, kind of unreliable, has these mood shifts, manic depressive, maybe, and David being fairly faithful, like if the doors are open, I'll come back. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Jonathan even says, as the Lord lives. It's, really, we don't see Saul making appeals to Yahweh very often. So when he does this here, it's kind of neat. There's hope for Saul. And there was war again, verse 8, but the hope doesn't last very long. And David went out and fought against the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled for him. So David has success. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. He sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. So again, we get the contrast between Saul with the spear, David with the harp. David has military success. Saul gets jealous. So we see a pattern. And then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, and he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped into the night. That makes three spears that David had thrown at him. 
After the third one, he does not stick around a second time and wait for a fourth. He just takes off. So the whole cycle kicks back in. And we see this idea of the more success David got, the more jealous Saul got. So Saul takes his national champion and turns him into a fugitive. Verse 11. By the way, as it says, David fled and escaped into the night. He's not coming back to the palace for 20 years. Like this is it for David. He never comes back until he's actually the king. So this, this is the last interaction he has with Saul. He doesn't renew the friendship. He doesn't try to appeal to him. He doesn't write letters every week checking in. This is it. He's done. Three spears and we're done. Which is why we say three strikes and you're out. I thought the baseball reference would fit. All right. Verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And, and Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. Thanks, wife. So Michael let David down through a window, and he went out, and he fled and escaped. So Saul's breaking his vow from verse 6 not to kill David. He's disobeying, uh, Michael's disobeying her dad, but she's saving a life in doing it. We get another example of somebody that is following God's law and not their dad's law. And they, she's joined with her husband, as she should be. Um, this should remind us a little bit of Rahab letting the spies down in Joshua chapter 2 that David's getting let down kind of the same way. I wonder if David thought that while he's getting let down out of a window. Like, oh yeah, the Israelite spies had this happen. She flees and escapes. Uh, this is the first biblical, not the first, this, I think this is a very good biblical example of husbands should probably listen to their wives. And that's a good thing. So um, David hears her and he acts accordingly. He hears wisdom. Again, you get the sense that Michael is sensing political situations better than David. Like David's not realizing that he's not safe and she's got to kind of tell him and convince him. But David's got friends. And I think this is good. When you've got honorable people that just love the Lord, sweet, simple, kind people, you get more savvy people around you like Jonathan and Michael that actually protect him. God is raising up people to guard David's sweetheart. And I think that's beautiful. And all David's got to do is listen to him and trust them and trust that the people around him aren't out to get him, like Saul's thinking. The people around him are out there to save him. So again, we see this contrast between Saul's disposition and David's disposition. Saul is a bad king and David is a good king. David doesn't think the worst of people. He thinks the best of them. Okay, the other cool thing, and I won't get too far into this one, if you read Psalm 59 this week, it self-references that he wrote this on the night that he would, was let out the window, which lets us know that even though David is running for his life, he's climbing down the rope thinking of a song and writes it down, and he writes Psalm 59 on this night of his life. I think that's super cool. What kind of person is like, oh, that would be a good song? And he's running for his life, getting spears thrown at him and taken off, and his wife's kicking him out of the house. Oh, it's a good song. I should write this. And his song is all about, I'm just going to put my faith in the Lord. I'm just going to love the Lord. It doesn't matter how ugly it gets. And I don't think any of us have crawled out of a window in the middle of the night to run for our lives. But that's not the moment that most people start writing songs. But that is the moment David starts writing songs. It's why Jonathan's soul was knit to him. Like, I will die for that guy. Because there's something wonderful about David. Verse 13, and Michael took an image. She shouldn't have images. It tells us why she might have been a snare. 
and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair up for its head and covered it with clothes. So a really bad David dummy gets put in the bed. So when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, oh, he's sick. She lies. And then sent the messengers back to see David saying, bring him to me in the bed that I might kill him. See the progression of hatred for Saul? This is mean. If you got the flu, you don't haul people out when they got there. They just let him be sick and then kill him. But he doesn't even have that kind of mercy. He wants to kill him right now. So then they sent the messengers back uh, to see David saying, bring, bring him up to me in the bed that I might kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with the cover of goat's hair for his head. <laughs> this is a great scene. And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he's escaped? Her answer should have been like, because in Genesis um, 2.24, I joined with my husband and I left you, right? I'm supposed to protect my husband, not you. This is my job. So who are you to tell me not to save my own husband? But she doesn't. She just says, and Michael answered to Saul saying, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? She lies about David. She paints a picture that actually fits Saul's image. She tells Saul exactly what he wants to hear. What do you mean? He was trying to kill my daughter? You know, the rage just gets bigger and bigger. The storm grows around David, and he's off writing songs right now. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. Look at, when he's in trouble, he just goes to a man of God. Let me hang out with him. And told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went, and they stayed at Nioth. Uh, Nioth is the Hebrew word for residence or house guest. He just moved in with Samuel. Hey, Samuel, can I crash on your couch? Yep, you got a spot on my couch as long as you want it. Now it was told to Saul saying, take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. <laughs> I love this. You can say a lot about Saul, but you got to respect his persistence. When he's in sin, he's kind of all in for this sort of thing. Like, you know, we never admire the devil, the devil's work, according to David Gusick, uh, but we can always admire the devil's work ethic. Um, so he's just, he's persistent on this. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, then, and Samuel standing as leader over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers a third time, and they prophesied too. Three times, this is complete. Like, it's just, this is a dead end for Saul. He keeps sending people out to kill David, and they join with the prophets. And we know prophesying is, is to speak or sing under the influence of a sp spirit. So likely, this looks a lot like when Saul, when we first saw Saul, saw Saul he was worshiping with the prophets. And now we see this moment. Frankly, I'm thinking there's some really good music being written because we had the catchy song that ticked Saul off, and now we got a catchy song that makes murderers start to sing along, right? And so this is, there's a party going on, and instead of killing David, the soldiers jump in on the party. Here's another reason they didn't kill David. Remember, they respected David. At the beginning of the last chapter, all the people regarded David highly. So we have Saul's son disobeying the order to kill, Saul's daughter disobeying the order to kill, and now we have Saul's closest advisors, spies, and assassins disobeying the order to kill. And the Bible presents this as good, that when people tell you to do evil things, you just don't do it and start singing songs, right? So this is this idea. Then 
Saul also, verse 22, then he also went to Ramah and came to a great well that is, that is at Seshu. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And somebody said, indeed, they're, they're at residence or Naoth in Ramah. So he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And then the spirit of God came upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. Saul starts singing too. This is one weird situation, right? Saul is so given to whatever spirits are around him, he has no foundation. And, but in this moment, he's come, to, he's come to attack God's servant and he can't do it. And God himself steps in to preserve David. Nehemiah 8.10. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy food and sweet drinks and send some of those who have nothing prepared. The day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. What we're seeing in David is the best example of that. David's strength is that he's a joyful guy. And he's just sitting around with David, and he's like, hey, I wrote this song when I was running away. Listen to this one. And so he's playing these songs, and they're just songs of joy, songs of praise. And those songs are what save his life. It's the song of the believer coming out of our life that saves us from the worst that the world has to offer. It's our joy. And in this case, it's like an actual literal thing. The joy of the Lord is his strength. And he also, this just gets weirder, verse 24, and Saul also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. I'm thinking all of them are like, buddy, you're going too far. Like, you know, it's one of those things where you got a movement of the spirit and then somebody gets a little nutso and you're like, okay, a little bit beyond neat and orderly kinds of things. But he takes off all his clothes, apparently, and prophesies before Samuel in like matter. He lays down naked all day and all night. And therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Remember at the beginning of Saul's career, they said that, but it was a positive thing. Isn't Saul among the prophets? Like, hey, if Saul can sing with prophets, anybody can. But here we are at the end of his career, and it's the same statement, only now, sadly, it's more negative. And Saul's just laying naked with the prophets, like something's wrong with that guy. So instead of honor in his life, it, it doesn't work that way. But with David, he just keeps getting more. So that's where it all began. Another way to read this, which I think is valid too, and, and you can make up your own mind. One of the things about getting naked in the ancient world was it was an act of humility. So to rend your clothing or to strip off clothing and to lay on the ground is a way to prostrate yourself, prostate yourself, and, and, and show humility before whoever you're for. And it could be that Saul at this point absolutely just repents and his heart's broken and his whole life is recognized as worthless. And you, you know, it's one of those things, Genesis 3, 9, by the sweat of the brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And that act of getting naked is kind of like, I came into the world as a naked baby, I'm going to leave the world as a naked man. And it could be that Saul's doing this in great humility. It could be that he's doing this in great, like, ah, there's nothing worth living for anymore. And he's just throwing up his hands in this kind of futile kind of way. We don't really know. We know the history of Saul's personality, but the Bible doesn't tell us what his motivation is in doing this. All it does is it tells us David didn't get killed because Saul's naked and singing and that something came over Saul and they're trying to recognize this through human eyes. What's going on right now is a massive spiritual warfare. So truly the life of Saul is summarized 
in, the, in this, you know, I, I think really well summarized when Jesus told the parable of the seed that falls on the stony ground. Here's what it looks like. And think about Saul's ark and his path. Started out with tons of enthusiasm, singing for the Lord. Then he gets prideful, his heart gets hard, and it all goes bad. So Matthew 13, 20, but he had they received the seed in stony places, the same as he that hears the word and receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, and it doesn't endure only but for a while. When tribulation and persecution arises because of the word, and by and by he's offended. So that kind of summarize, summarizes the Saul personality type. Lots of enthusiasm, never gets a relationship with the Lord, there's no roots, and as soon as anything bad happens around him, he just gets offended at everything, and everything's wrong, and he's yelling at everybody. This is like when we drive, I always just blame other people in the car when it's really my fault that I just missed the turn. You know, it's, and that's Saul. Like, everything's just somebody else's fault. There's offense in everything, and he takes offense at everything, and his life just never bears any fruit, and it doesn't multiply and grow. And what a sad thing for Saul. But David is going to continue to be established. In fact, being a fugitive is the best thing that could ever happen for David for being a king and being trained because his kingdom gets built without the power of human institutions. His kingdom gets built from the ground up, people choosing to sacrifice their life to be part of this new kingdom. And it's a reflection of the church. So what David is about to build is a new kind of empire, a new kind of kingdom. And that's what we'll get to next week, and we just knocked off two chapters. Amen? All right, let's pray, and then we'll get to questions. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for these examples. Lord, it's hard to read about Saul. Um, we want to see that these characters find you and serve you. And it's a sobering situation when we see there are some people, they just can't do it. So Lord, I pray that what happened at the end with Saul, in my, that that was repentance. I pray that he was getting himself right with you. Um, and, and I just pray that, Lord, that... Uh, there's so many people that we know that we run into, Lord, that are walking around with hard hearts. They see offense even when we're trying to do good. Uh, they call evil good and they call good evil. And Lord, we just make our hearts just sorrow for those people, not to be angry, frustrated, hateful. But Lord, help us to just see them as people that are blinded, uh, that have stony hearts. Um, and Lord, that help our heart to be like your heart and that what you really want at the end of the day is for them to come around to being back in the kingdom and being obedient to you. Oh, Lord, thank you for examples like David. Thank you for his humility that is a defense against manipulations. Thank you for his joy that's a defense against attacks. Uh, thank you, Lord, that he's writing songs when he's running for his life. Uh, thank you for making people like David. And Lord, we can't wait someday to meet David. Um, you say that both the dead and the ones that are taken up will be together in heaven. And Lord, I can't make, wait to meet David and, and play music with him uh, and study the word with him and what a joy that'll be. Uh, but thank you, Lord, for filling his heart and for bringing these stories into the word so that we can read them. Lord, I pray for a blessing on everyone in this room tonight and those that can't be with us on the podcast. Lord, I just pray you bless folks as we leave the study of the word, help us to go do what we read. Not the Saul side, but the David side. And help us, Lord, to just serve you and to do it with humility and joy and grace. Um, and Lord, help us to be wise and to trust our friends and the people around us that 
um, care for us, Lord, and help us to receive rebukes with humility. Um, and help us, Lord, to do your work regardless. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.